The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Good morning, church family. Um, If you would all stand with me as we read from the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, Sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know, because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you will buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. The redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Killian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among the relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful and Ephrathah and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son to Marbor to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. You may all be seated, and if we can bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Father God, that we've all made it here this morning. Just pray for this time to be protected by you, Lord. Clear our minds and our hearts that we, we may receive the message that Pastor has to deliver today. Be with Pastor that he would be able to deliver the message as you have for us, Lord. Um, in all things, may we glorify you. May we take wisdom of what information is relayed to us and apply it into our lives. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Running out of gas as you're driving down the road in the middle of the night is not the way anyone plans on spending their evening. How many of you have ever done this? Be honest. You've been driving down the road and you ran out of gas. Raise your hand. Anybody been there before? You've done that? Um, Last year, Jenny and I were driving back from Los Angeles. I had been preaching at a church down there and we were going to drive back to Fresno up north on on the 99. And we left after the evening service and began driving. And I would say it was probably about, oh, 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning. And we're heading through the Kingsburg area. It's about, you know, late in the night. And we're trucking along and just talking and, and just, you know, uh, spending some time just kind of uh, together and some, uh, going through some things. And we, we were driving. And as we're driving, all of a sudden, I, I felt the car just kind of do one of these... I, mean, I, I don't know if you've ever been here before, and so you can tell something's wrong with the vehicle. And, and so I took my foot, and I stepped down on the gas, and in that moment, I realized nothing happened. How many of you, be honest, you've experienced this before, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, no. You look at the gas gauge, and sur- sure enough, uh, we had completely ran out of gas. And here we are in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, cruising down the highway at 75, 80 miles an hour. I'm thinking, what in the world am I going to do? And so, you know, of course, with, you know, when the when gas kind of goes out of the car, all of a sudden, you know, everything kind of the power steering goes out a little bit. And so I'm kind of trying to make my way here to the right side of the road so we can pull over. And I'm just in my mind, I'm thinking, what do we do? I didn't want to push down on the brake 
because I didn't want to slow it down. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, where to go, what to do. And as we're pulling over, all of a sudden the distance, maybe a quarter mile or so, I noticed this off-ramp. And I'm thinking maybe if I get to the off-ramp, you know, something will happen. So I just, we just start coasting. And so I'm, I'm heading down the off-ramp. And I notice at the end of the off-ramp, there's a stop sign. And I'm thinking, I can't stop because if I stop, that's it, you know? And so I'm praying, dear Lord, please help there not to be a car because I'm about to blow this stop sign completely. And I get closer to it. Sure enough, no car, middle of the night. I just blow through the stop sign. I turn right, and all of a sudden, praise the Lord, I see this little old rickety gas station all over to the right. And I'm thinking, man, if I can just get to the gas station, maybe all of this will work out. And so it's creeping along. We get to where that gas station is. I turn another right, and it's just slowing down. And all of a sudden, that whole car just stops. And when I look to my right, right where it stops, we're right next to a gas pump. And I'm thinking to myself, who I looked over at Jenny and I was like, you got to admit, that was pretty awesome. <laughs> she looked at me. She's like, that, that, that was idiotic. She's like, why weren't you paying attention to the gas gauge? You know, and the reality is all of us have had times where you know, our humanity or our stupidity got the best of us. How many of you, be honest, you've been there before? You did something, it just wasn't the smartest. You did something, you weren't paying attention, and you found yourself in a situation where you're like, I can't believe I got myself into this. I think we've all been there. And some of us have been there in smaller situations because of small issues that we've been through. And if, if we were to be honest, some of us have gotten ourselves into some pretty big you know, ugly problems because of our humanity, uh, because of, dare we say, even our, our stupidity. And, and, and all of us, all of us have been there. And so today we want to take some time and, and as a theme for our message today, I, I want to kind of encapsulate it in one statement. And the one statement that I, would, that I would encapsulate this whole message in is simply this. It's simply this. All of us, every one of us, have a responsibility to be wise, even though God is ultimately in control. Let me say that one more time because I think it's important to get. We all have a responsibility to be wise, to be smart, even though God is ultimately in control. So here's my question to you this morning. Are you being wise in the practical aspects of your everyday life? Are you being wise? Are you being smart about life? Are you being wise in your decisions? Are you being wise in the practical aspects of your everyday life? That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, if you are visiting with us and you're a guest, thank you so much for coming out and being a part. In fact, on your way in, one of the ushers should have given you a guest guide. Inside, there's a little connection card. I want to just ask you to fill that out real quick, you know, maybe during the service. Uh, later on, you'll have the opportunity to turn that in uh, to the welcome tent. We have a small gift we'd like to give you. Uh, but for the rest of you, you should have also received a Bible study guide. Open that up. We're going to dive right into the scriptures today, and we're going to do a little bit of a study starting in Ruth chapter number 4, and we're going to go down through verse number 1. So, to catch us up to speed, because I know some of you, you're just jumping into the series with us right now, we're currently going through a series called The Story of Ruth, where we are going verse by verse by verse through the Old Testament book of the Bible called Ruth. Uh, there are two books in the scriptures named specifically after women. Uh, one was Esther. The other one is this book, Ruth. And in this particular story, it starts with a man by the name of Elimelech. He had grown up in a city called Bethlehem uh, there in Israel. And there came a time where all of a sudden famine hit that area. There was literally no food, nothing to eat. This man finds himself without any way to provide for his family. And he hears that there's some food down in Moab. Now, that wouldn't be such a big issue, except God had very clearly told the children of Israel not to go to Moab. Uh, the Moab people were a pagan people. They worshipped demon gods. There was all kinds of immorality that existed there. And so God was just forbid his people to uh, dwell among them. But Elimelech and his two sons and his wife were like, we don't have any food. We're going to disobey God. We're going to rebel against them. And so they just, they just do what they feel like doing. They head to Moab and uh, they end up being there for about 10 years. In fact, during that 10 years, the Bible says that Elimelech ends up dying. 
He left Bethlehem so he would live, yet he gets to Moab. He ends up dying. His two sons uh, do the second thing that God forbid his people to do. Not only were they not supposed to move there, but number two, they were not supposed to marry Moabitess women. And yet both of the sons do exactly that. They marry these these pagan women, these women who worshipped a a pagan god. And, And now all of a sudden they're married and it isn't long before the two of them, they die. So here's Naomi. She's got these two daughter-in-laws. She's broke. She has no food. And finally, she throws up her hands and says, you know what? I'm going back home. I don't know what else to do. And so she begins to make the journey back to Bethlehem. And one of her daughter-in-laws, by the name of Ruth, says, I'm going with you. I'm going with you. Naomi, your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you die, I'm dying. I'm going with you. This daughter-in-law's name was Ruth. She was a a Moabitess woman, and she goes with Naomi, and this book is named after her, and it tells her story. So to really understand what we're going to be talking about today, you have to understand the Old Testament tradition that is known as the the kinsman redeemer. And we've alluded to this over the last couple of weeks, but I want to give you a little bit more insight because it'll make this story make a whole lot more sense because this is an ancient custom that most of us are not familiar with. So the Bible says in Leviticus chapter number 25, it explains this provision in the law. It says, if one of your fellow Israelites become poor, they, they go bankrupt and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is supposed to come and redeem what they have sold. And the person who does this is referred to as a kinsman redeemer. So to help you make sense of this, basically if a family went bankrupt in this day and age and they got to a point where they just had to sell their property, it was the responsibility of the closest kin, the brother maybe, to say, I've got to figure out a way to make enough money so I can buy his property back for him. And then what they would do is they would pay interest to whoever had bought it, but they were allowed to have legal claim over it as long as they paid interest along with the purchase price to the person who had bought it. And so that's what Leviticus says we're supposed to do. That's what they were supposed to do in this situation, all right? That was the kinsman redeemer. That was their legal responsibility. But there was another aspect of being a kinsman redeemer. This one gets a little bit stranger. Deuteronomy chapter number 25 says this. Now, If brothers are living together near each other and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family, but her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her, basically to give her children. Okay, are you you following along with, with how this works? There was a provision in the law. If a man died, his widow, all right, now was going to be destitute. She wasn't going to be able to provide for herself. So it was the responsibility of her brother-in-law then to marry her to make sure that she could have children. How many of you ladies are like shaking your head thinking, there is no way, there's no way I would, I would fall in line with that. Not a chance. You're thinking about your brother-in-law. Not a chance, you know. This is not, this is not happening. But that's, that's the provision in the law of a kinsman redeemer. They were to buy back any property that would had gone into foreclosure, and they were responsible to make sure that the widow had an heir to carry on the family line. And it really all dealt with property. Property was a big deal in this day and age. You say, why? Because if you lost your property, if you lost your land, it's not like today. It, it's, it's a little bit different. If you lost your property back in that day and age, basically you lost your job because you worked the land. You lost your source of food because that's where you would get what you needed to eat. You would, thirdly, you would lose your income. And not only for yourself, but for your kids and for your grandkids, they would lose their income and their job and their ability to eat. And so this was a huge problem. And so the Old Testament law gave a provision to help keep property within a family, all right? And so that's basically what happens. But all of a sudden, as we saw last week, there's a little bit of an issue. Boaz finds himself in the second legal position. He is not in first position. Uh, We saw a picture of a house here. Some of you have been in the situation, and and maybe raise your hand if you have. Have you ever been in a situation where you went to buy a house and you put an offer in on the house? How many of you have done this before? You put an offer in on a house? All right. One of you. All right. I think there's more, but we'll just go with it. All right. You put an offer in on a house, and uh, you get it. You put the offer in, and you get a call from your real estate agent the next day, and they call and say, hey, we hate to inform you of this, but somebody beat you to the punch. 
you are now in second position on the house. I mean, you've been here before. I know we found ourselves there at Seasons. And all of a sudden, that's, that's where Boaz finds himself. He's in the second legal position on this particular piece of property. He is not first in line. And so because of that, this story that we read in Ruth chapter number four plays out. And that's really what this is about. You see, all throughout the book of Ruth, there is no mention of a temple, There's no mention of a synagogue. There's no mention of the tabernacle. There's no mention of church. Uh, This book is entirely void of any of those concepts. In fact, most of this story takes place at Boaz's workplace. Uh, The majority of this chapter takes place on his ranch. Some of it, as we're going to see today, actually takes place in a court of law. And so this entire story basically is centered not around church and the temple and the tabernacle. This story basically centers around a work environment, a legal environment. It's kind of just where average blue-collar guys would go to work. And so it's really, it's that type of story. And, and sometimes, sometimes I'll have people ask me and they'll, they'll be a little confused and they'll say, is it, is it okay for somebody who's a believer? Is it okay for somebody who calls himself a Christian? Is it okay for them to run their own business? Is it okay for them to to want to make money? Is it okay for them to, you know, draw up contracts? Is is this okay? Is it okay for Christian men or Christian women to be savvy when it comes to investments and and these types of things? And and in a very real way, in this book of Ruth, we, we get a little bit of what I'll call a case study about how a spiritually mature believer goes about practical business dealings. And that's basically what Ruth 4 is. It's going to be this wealthy businessman, and it's going to be him just kind of working a deal with someone else. It's just the practicalities of it, and that's, that's what this is about. So let's just dive into our Bible study. Verse number one, here's what happens. It says, now Boaz, verse one of chapter number four, went to the gate and sat down there. Now at first glance, that might not seem a bit like a big deal, uh, but in ancient Israel, the gate, the gate of a city, This is where business was done. So if you wanted to make a deal, if you wanted to negotiate, this was like their their town hall. This is where the business leaders would meet to work deals, to sell property, to file bankruptcy. This is is where it would happen. This is where the government leaders would go. This is where the religious leaders would collect. They would all meet at the gate. It was kind of like the, the power center of a city. And so it says, Boaz goes to this place. Notice what it says in the end of the verse. It says, and behold, behold, that close relative of whom Boaz had spoken of, he came by. He came by. All right? I want you to see this. this. Throughout this book of Ruth, we see this idea of God's providence. These, these things that just kind of happen. Happen. We saw this earlier when Ruth went to this random field to glean food for her and Naomi. The Bible says it just so happened that she ended up at Boaz's field, who happened to be a relative. It was like a, a coincidence. We kind of see that again here. Here Boaz goes, and and here it happens. This man comes, and we see this kind of providence on display again. And and really, this idea of God's providence is woven all throughout the story of Ruth. It really becomes a theme in this book of God's providence, which brings us to the first thought we're going to point out this morning. If you're taking notes, I want you to see, first of all, I want to encourage us today to, to really trust in God's providence to trust in it, to rest in it, to rest in it. Providence means primarily two things. If if you're jotting notes, when we say the word providence, what we're saying is God is in control, he's in charge, and secondly, we're saying God is caring. God is in control, and God is caring. That is to say this, he wants to help because he's caring, and he can because he's in control. So when we speak of this concept of the providence of God, we're saying he, God is in control and God cares. He cares. Uh, we see the, the theme of providence play out in the middle of the book of Genesis with a character by the name of Joseph. Maybe some of you who have been in church world for a while, you're, you're familiar with the story of Joseph. It's a huge story that takes up a massive portion of the first book of the Bible called Genesis. I don't have time to get in all the minutia and all the details, but I'll simply say this. He has a lot of bad things happen to him, and he has a lot of people take advantage of him. 
He has a lot of people hurt him. He has a lot of people, to use the colloquialism, throw him under the bus, and there's just a lot of people in his life who are making his life miserable, from his family uh, to his boss to people who say they're going to be there for him. It's just like everybody like, turns their back on him. And all of a sudden, at the end of the story, he makes this statement at the end of his life. He says in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, as for you, he says, you meant evil against me. But God, but God meant it for good. And maybe you're here today and, and there's somebody who has just really done you wrong. And, and maybe it was an ex who just, who just did you wrong. And, and maybe it was a parent that didn't treat you quite right. And maybe it was a child that turned their back on you. Or maybe it was a business partner who cheated you. And, and you've had seasons in your life where people just did you wrong. They hurt you. They caused issues for you. And they meant it for evil. I want to say to you today, when we speak of the providence of God, what we're saying is that when even when people, people who say they're going to be there for us, people who say they've got our back, people who we believe in, the Bible says even when those people do evil against us, we have a providential God in heaven who is able to work it for good. You meant evil to me. You were trying to hurt me. You were trying to destroy me. You were trying to make life miserable. But God, but God meant it for good. We see in the story of Joseph, because of all the things he went to, he ends up becoming second in the line of the throne of Pharaoh, Egypt. He literally becomes like a king through those horrible circumstances in his life. And God took every bad thing that happened to him and he gave it a purpose and he redeemed it and we worked it together for good. Why? Because they meant it for evil. And yet God took it and used it for good. So when we speak of God's providence, that's what we're referring to. God's ability to take bad things and work them together for our good and his ultimate glory. So we see that we're called to trust in providence and, and Boaz sees providence take place in his situation and all throughout the book of Ruth we see this theme of providence woven throughout these passages and so we're called to just trust, to rest, to relax in the providence of God and his ability to control the situation in his ability to be in charge because he's the God of heaven who oversees all and we can trust him. Trust in God's providence. Well, let's keep reading. Notice the middle of verse 2. So Boaz said to him, he said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. This man who was in first legal position on the property and the kinsman redeemer to Naomi. So this man came aside and he sat down next to him. Then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down as well. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belongeth to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will, I will redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. So get, get the picture here. He's standing at the gate. He sees this man who's in first position on this property from a legal perspective. He sees him. He says, come on, sit, sit down. I need to talk. We, we got we to gotta work a deal out here. I, I need to tell you about something. So before he, uh, before he gets into negotiations, he says, we need some witnesses. So he gets 10 of the elder men in the city, and he says, I want you to sit here. I want you to listen to what's going on. And back in ancient times, they didn't necessarily pull out a piece of paper and a pen and drop a contract. They would have these elders in the city, and they would be witnesses to prove the veracity of what was going on. They would say, yes, that's what happened. No, that's not what happened. And so they'd have these witnesses to stand in proof of what was taking place. And so here in this passage, we basically see Boaz, he He's now negotiating a real estate deal over the property that once belonged to Elimelech. Now, the scripture doesn't say specifically, but basically what we can conjure up is that Elimelech at some point had sold off his property. Remember, they were bankrupt. They didn't have any money. And now it was the responsibility of a kinsman, kinsman redeemer to come along and redeem it, to buy it back with interest. And they could, they could take it and they could take care of it. 
Now this, because Elimelech was dead, this would now go to Naomi. And so that, that's what's taking, care, uh, taking place here. Now we can see in this passage, Boaz, he's working, he's negotiating a deal of some sort. He, he's got, you know, he's, this is like a short sale, we might be able to say. He brings in the witnesses, like he's got the lawyers, he's got the accountants, he's got, you know, the people all around. And then it comes to verse number four and he throws it out to this man. He says, here's what's going on. And all of a sudden we get to verse four and this man says... I'll redeem it. I'll take it. Sounds like a great deal. Now, imagine just for a moment, okay? They're at the city gates. They have the witnesses around them. Oftentimes in these situations, there would be other people that would gather around the crowd. And so when these type of things were taking place, it was kind of big news in the city. And so often people in the city would be a little curious. They would get a little nosy about what was going on. And oftentimes a crowd would gather around. And and I could imagine that possibly Naomi and Ruth, because they're curious about this situation, they want to know how this is all going to go down. I could imagine that maybe they snuck to the corner of this crowd and they're kind of listening in to see what's going to happen. And Ruth's kind of crossing her fingers thinking to herself how is this going to take place how is this all going to go down and we get to verse number four and she hears this man say i'll take it sounds like a good deal to me you could just imagine in that moment how ruth's heart might have just sank he says i'll take it now that would be tough it'd be difficult but the story doesn't stop there so we keep reading and then it says then boaz said then boaz said so this is kind of where Boaz now gets into the, the fine print. How many of you love fine print, you know? He's going he's gonna to dive into the fine print. He's like, okay, it sounds like a good deal. You're going to get some land. You redeem the property. Let's, let's get into the fine print for a moment. He says, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from the Ruth the Moabite. So basically, he starts informing him. He says, okay, you buy this property. You take this house. He says, I just want to remind you, uh, it comes with a mother-in-law. She's a little bitter. She gets uh, irritated, but she comes with the deal. Not only do you get a cranky old mother-in-law, it also, she, it also comes with this Moabitess woman. Now, you've got to understand, in this culture, in this day and age, the Moabites were looked down on because it wasn't too many years earlier where the Moabites came and literally killed 24,000 of their people. There was some animosity between these individuals. And so Boaz stands up. He says, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You can redeem the lamb, but just make sure. Remember, it comes with Naomi, that bitter mother-in-law. You're going to get that Moabitess woman that now all of you got to provide a son for. And, and, and once, once you give her a son, when that son grows up, you got to take the land that you bought and you got to give it back to him. Now, all of a sudden, this guy's kind of backpedaling a little bit. Whoa, 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 wait a second. I, I didn't realize what was all down, down to the deal. And, and what you get, you get this sense that here, Boaz, he's a savvy business guy. He's kind of laying out the proposition. He's negotiating the deal. He knows way more of the details than even this man knew. Even though he was in second position, he knew exact, he knew the fine print. He knew the details. He knew how to navigate this thing. And that's where he finds himself. And so all of a sudden now, this man is like, okay, okay, I got to think about this for a moment. And the close relative in verse 6 says, ah, I can't redeem it for myself. It says, lest I ruin my own inheritance. So I don't know if I can do this. You know, if you're telling me I've got to give this Moabite woman a son, and then when he grows up, I've got to give this land that I paid for back to him, I don't know if that's a good deal for me. And he says, no, I don't think so. He says, he goes on to say, he says, uh, you redeem my right of redemption for yourself. Uh, for I can't, I can't redeem this. I, I'm, I'm, not going, I'm not going through with this. Which, which brings us here to the next thought we're going to study uh, this morning. And that's this. Uh, we see this uh, call to trust in providence, all right? But I want you to see, second of all here, this, this walking in prudence. Let's, let's call it this for a moment. Walking in prudence. Here is Boaz. He's a wealthy businessman. He's savvy. He's smart. He is walking in wisdom. He's being prudent. He's being wise and practical about this business legal situation. And even though there is sovereignty at play, even though there is God's providence at work, even though he's a believer who knows that God is ultimately in control, Boaz still is wise. He's still being smart. He's still being savvy. And I want to encourage us as a church family, not only do we see this providence, but I want to encourage us to walk in 
prudence, to walk in prudence. You say, what does prudence mean? It just means to be wise. There's a whole book of the Bible called Proverbs that encourages God's people to walk in wisdom. It doesn't make God love you more or less, but because he is the omnipotent heavenly father, he gives us his word to enlighten us and to to help us to navigate this thing called life. And, And prudence means to lean into that, to be wise, to be smart, to be practical, to be proactive, to be savvy. This is, it's not a sinful thing. It's not a bad thing. I would say to some of you here today, it's not a bad thing to have, you know, insurance. If you can afford it, it's not bad to have life insurance. It's not bad to have a will or a living trust. There's some prudence, there's some wisdom to these things. And and God calls us to walk in wisdom. It has nothing to do with our standing with God, but because he's a benevolent heavenly father, he gives us truth, he gives us instruction so we can walk on this earth in wisdom. So even though there's providence at play in the book of Ruth, and even though Boaz is a, is a, is a spiritual believer who, who believes in the providence and sovereignty of God, he's not just going to be like, all right, God's in control, God's providential, God's sovereign, and so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let God do whatever God's gonna do. No. He is resting in God's providence. He is resting in God's control, but then he also goes over here and is a savvy, wise businessman. He does everything he can in his own strength to do what he can do, while at the same time trusting God with the ultimate results. And and that's just where we get this call to walk in wisdom. Matthew chapter number 10, verse 16 says, be wise. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And because we have the spirit of Christ in us, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that Christ is our wisdom. He is our wisdom. And so we have confidence to know that his wisdom can be lived out through our decisions and through our choices and through our lives. I want to challenge us to surrender to this spirit of prudence, the spirit of wisdom that God's spirit is leading us into. Um, several months ago, there was a theme park that opened up in, in Barcelona, Spain. In fact, they built a roller coaster. It was actually supposed to be one of the biggest roller coasters that, that existed there. And, and, the, and the name of that roller coaster was called, it was, the, it was Port Adventure. It was kind of its name. And, and on one particular day, there was a man from New Zealand who was going to ride this roller coaster. And so he's, he's on this roller coaster. He's riding it. They get ready to do this first big drop, and, and he notices something. Right in front of him, a few cars in front, there's this phone that must have somehow slipped out of some guy's pocket and goes flying. This man from New Zealand, man, he takes his hand, he stretches it out as far as he can, and literally in the middle of the ride, he grabs it, snatches this phone in midair. The ride gets over, he runs over to the guy who he sees had dropped it. He gives him the phone. He says, hey, it was flying through the air. I, I, I caught it. And this man was just excited. He couldn't believe that this guy had caught this phone in the middle of this roller coaster. And so he decided he didn't know how to say thank you. So they noticed that, you know, there's videos often on roller coasters and things. And this whole thing had been caught on video. So this man, as a thank you, bought the video uh, for him. And the guy uploaded it to the internet. I want you to see this for yourself. in our lives as believers, we can be like, well, God's, God's in control. God's going to do what God's going to do. Can I say this? It's not wrong for a Christian to be like, you know what? I know God's doing what he can do, but I'm also going to do what I can do. And, and I'm saying to you as believers, that is when you're at your workplace, man, I hope God would lead you and his spirit would empower you to walk in wisdom, to walk in prudence. And I, I hope many of you would be some of the hardest workers at your workplace. And I pray that God would bless you with promotions. I pray, pray that he would just put just a, a blessing over you, that you would be able to grow and get promotions and do the best you can and have a wonderful testimony. There's nothing wrong with doing the best you can with wherever God has put you in life. I'll say it this way. It's not wrong to physically do everything you can do. 
in the physical realm, while at the same time spiritually in the spiritual realm, trusting that God will do what only he can do. Are you, are you, are you tracking with me here for a moment? There's two realms. There's a physical realm and there's a spiritual realm. There's what happens in the world we can sense with our touch and our eyes and in the physical realm. And then there's a spiritual realm of what happens internally. And what happens for a lot of believers as I walk through church world for a while, it, it appears to me that it's very easy for a believer to lean into one direction over another direction. And they'll kind of end up getting imbalanced. And sometimes that imbalance happens because there's a person over here and they're just kind of like, well, I got to do everything I can do and I got to work hard and I got to make it happen. And I've got to, you know, dun -dun, just, and they like kind of, and all of a sudden they, they lean into that so heavily that their, their soul just gets weighted under a sense of responsibility and they start getting stressed out. They start getting really anxious they get overly burdened. Why? Because they got to make this thing happen. They got to do it. The physical realm. And then sometimes there's Christians over here and they're these types. They're just like, well, God is sovereign. God is providential. He is in control. And so whatever he decides is what he decides and, and almost breeds like this apathy. And I'm here to kind of remind you that God's providence and our prudence are not at odds with each other. God wants us in a spiritual realm to trust, to rest, to be at peace in the spiritual realm, while at the same time in the physical realm be doing everything we can do in our strength. But the heart posture is one of rest and one of dependence and one of peace. This is not a problem to be solved. Which one are we? Are we supposed to trust in his providence and his sovereignty? Or are we supposed to do the best we can do? This is not a problem to be solved. It's a tension to be managed. Both are important. Within the same line of thinking, and there's Christians, and, and some of them have this very, like, they, I, I just call it a poverty theology. Well, you know, God's sovereign, God's in control, and they, there's this almost this spiritual passivity, and, you know, God just wants people to be poor, and, and God wants, you know, us not to have anything, and there's this apathy that can kind of seep over their lives, and, and, it, and it's almost like this badge of honor because I'm poor, and that's what God, the God loves poor people more, and they have this poverty theology. And I'm here to say, I don't see that in the scriptures. There's other people who have a prosperity theology and they're like, no, God wants me to be rich. God wants to be healthy, wealthy. He wants me to have lots of money. He wants me to drive cool cars and live in big houses. Call it prosperity gospel, prosperity theology. I'm here to say this, that is just as unbiblical. If you have a poverty theology or if you have a prosperity theology, both are extremes for biblical believers to avoid calls us to something else. He calls us to something higher. He calls us to something transcendent. He calls us to what I'll refer to as, as providential theology. Providential theology. Providential theology says, you know what, my heart is at peace. It's at rest knowing that what Christ done is sufficient. On a soul level, on a spirit level, I'm not anxious. I'm not worried, I'm not stressed because I know God works all things together for good. While at the same time, I know I have the spirit of God that resides within me and I can do all things through Christ and what the spirit of God calls me to do, I am enabled by his spirit to accomplish and so I can work and I can do that which I, I didn't even know I was capable of doing by his spirit and by his strength and a providential theology is able to maintain both to say I'm going to work hard, I'm going to be wise, I'm going to be smart, I'm going to be savvy and if God's given you the ability to run businesses then run businesses to the glory of God and if he's given you the ability to get promotions at work then get promotions to the glory of God and if he gives you the wisdom to make wise investments and get lots of money, then do it to the glory of God. But let's not live in a passivity that says, well, whatever will be, will be. But let us not also live in flesh dependence thinking, well, if something's gonna happen, then I gotta make it take place. No, 
neither prosperity nor poverty. No, providential theology. Trusting in God and doing what God is calling me to do. What is God calling us to do? Let's keep reading, all right? We're going we're gonna to move on here, verse 7. So here's Boaz. He's leaning into this situation. He's a wise, savvy businessman. He lays out this deal. So it says in verse 7, Now was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. So when it came to uh, just a kinsman redeemer, there was a custom that would take place. It said, One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, uh, buy it for yourself. So this man, this close relative, this man in first position, he said he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Now this sounds really strange. Like why is this guy taking off his stinky sandal in the middle of this story? What's that have to do with absolutely anything that's going on? In ancient biblical times, they didn't necessarily pull out contracts and have big quill pens and they'd sign these contracts. The way it would work is when somebody was selling a property, the two people involved in the purchase of the property, they would literally walk the entire perimeter of the property. And so they would say, hey, this is the boundary of my property. It goes by this rock. It goes around this tree. It goes down this little meadow, down through this valley. It cuts in through this river. And they would literally walk the entire perimeter of their entire property. And the man who was selling it then at the end would take off his sandal that had all the dust from where he had walked, he would pull it off and as proof that this belonged to this other man, he'd give him the sandal and it basically became a receipt. (laughs) Hey, proves that I bought it. In this situation, because this man wasn't directly connected with the property, he saves himself the time to do the walk. He just pulls off his sandal right there and gives it to him and says, I'm giving over my right to this property. You can now take it and redeem it for yourself. Verse 10, moreover, Uh, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, verse 10, have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the deed through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. So basically Boaz is saying, hey, oh, by the way, I just want to make sure I'm reinforcing this. Uh, That lady, Ruth, uh, she's coming with this deal, right? We all understand this. We're all on the same page here, all right? So he's like, he's kind of like making sure they, they get this, all right? So we see this, this trusting in providence. We, we continue on with the, Boaz is walking in a lot of prudence. He's doing everything he can to make this deal happen. He's being wise. He's being smart. He knows the fine print. He's working in, in and out, but it doesn't stop there. We go into verse 11. You're going to see this phrase, may the Lord and, and all the people who are at the gate. So now this crowd who had gathered around to see the situation and the elders said, we are witnesses. We're witnesses. We're here to confirm that this thing took place. Now, now, they kinda, now notice this. It says, May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. So they start to get, they're just like lifting up, they're, they're just like praying this prayer. And they're saying, may Ruth, may she be like Leah and Rachel, the ones who raised up all these children that became the lineage of Israel. They're literally praying this blessing over Boaz and over Ruth. And they go on to say, and may you prosper and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez. Notice this, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. They mentioned Tamar, which is really interesting because if you read back earlier, Tamar was actually another foreign woman. She wasn't born in the house of Israel. She's a foreigner, just like Ruth was a foreigner. And so these people in their prayer of blessing over this situation, they're basically saying, we're praying that Ruth will be as fruitful as Tamar was. Yes, she was a foreigner. Yes, she was an outsider. But God in his providence used her as part of this lineage of Israel. And we're praying that same blessing over Ruth in this situation as well. Which brings us to the final thought, if you're taking notes. Oh, that we would be led to continue in prayer. Continue in prayer. You see, prayer is one of the things the Lord uses to align us with God's providence. Yes, we we rest in his providence. We come to that place where we walk in in prudence, but then we continue in a spirit of prayer. Why? Because prayer reveals where our confidence lies. You can tell a lot about where somebody's heart is at by their prayer life. If it's been a while since your heart has been led to pray, 
and to seek God's face. I'm not here to say shame, 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 shame on you. You know what it reveals? That your soul struggles to trust God. You're probably more anxious. You probably worry more. Why? Because the heart of somebody who truly is at rest in the sovereignty and providence of God, because they realize that their hope is in Christ, their hope is in God, they can't help but to pray. They know that's where their hope is at. They know that's where their confidence is at and just leads them to pray. And I want to encourage us, yes, while we're resting in his, his providence and while we're walking in prudence, that it would all be saturated in the spirit of prayer. That's why Philippians 4 says it this way. Hey, don't be anxious for anything. Don't be anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. You know what? Prayer is the antidote to anxiety. It's the antidote to stress. It's the antidote to worry. Why? Because true prayer comes from a heart that is, has its dependence and trust in God. And so there's prayer. I find that some people in churches, um, there's some people who are like, they're like, you know, they're real planners, and they're real go-getters, and they got to get things done, and they're always moving and doing, and they're, they're planners, and blah, blah, they're producers. But sometimes they're not prayers. You know what I mean? They're getting things done, but they aren't going to the Lord in prayer. They don't pray. And on the flip side, sometimes there's people in church world, and they're really good at praying. Man, they're praying all the time. Their heart is that of trust and dependence, but then they don't really plan and produce. They're kind of like, well, God will take care of it. God calls us to something that transcends both of those extremes. A soul that is at rest and a life that is empowered by the Spirit of God to do everything that we can do by His grace and for His glory. That's why one theologian said it this way, pray like it all depends on God, but then work like it all depends on you. There's a dichotomy there. Both of those are important. A soul that is at rest and a life that's in action. As we sum up this passage, I want the takeaway to simply be reminded us of this, and that is this. Awareness of God's providence aware that he is in control and he's in charge, the awareness of God's providence should never lead us to neglect prudence. It shouldn't. If you're one who says God's in control and God's in charge, if you really believe that, that should lead you to be empowered by his spirit to go to work and to serve, and to be a hard worker, and to take investments, and use savings, and do everything you know how to do for the glory of God, and then rest in whatever his providence allows, and if you find yourself, and maybe you're, you're, you're just an overworker, and you're always kind of workaholic, because you're so convinced it all depends on you, and you're stressed out, and you're anxious, then you need to find transcendence in your ability to trust that God is ultimately in control. And when you find yourself in that place where those two things intersect, there's a beautiful health in the life of a spiritual believer. But that's hard when things are difficult. And some of you are going through trials. I, I remember when, when I was a kid, sometimes we would fly out to Milwaukee, Wisconsin to, to be with my grandmother. She, she lived outside of Milwaukee. In fact, uh, her and her husband, my grandpa, uh, came over to the States kind of during World War II when the Nazi regime was going crazy, and they're like, we got to get out of here. And so they left Nazi Germany to come to America. Uh, my dad, his first language was German. In fact, he didn't even learn English till he went to school. They grew up, my grandpa actually died when my dad was a, a young boy, and, and every once in a while when I was little, my, my dad would take me back home to Milwaukee, back to his home, and we'd spend some time with, we called her Oma. That's the German word for, for grandma, we call her Oma. And I remember a lot of times I'd be sitting on the living room floor, and I'd be four or five years old, playing with some toys, and, 
And my Oma would often do this thing, and, and maybe some of you have relatives who do this. She had this big comfortable chair, this sofa that she would kind of sit on, and, and then she had this like wooden ring of sorts, and it was this wooden ring, and, and she'd have some sewing needles, and, and she'd be doing this thing where she'd put the needles in and pull the needles out and put the needles in, some type of cross stitch that she would start working. And I remember sitting there on the floor on a couple of occasions, and I, I'd look up to where Oma was on the chair, and I, I'd look up at that little cross stitch from below, and to be honest, from my vantage point, it... I didn't know what was going on. If you've ever seen on the backside of a cross stitch, it's pretty like, what is this? There's yarn going in different directions. It's different colors. It looks like a big mess. And, and honestly, you know, Grandma just looked like she was going crazy with some needle and, and a little bit of yarn. I'm just like, I, don't, I can't figure this thing out. What's she doing up there? She'd go for half an hour, maybe an hour. And at some point, she'd inevitably say, she'd say, Josh, look, look, look at this. I'd get up from below where I was at and I'd walk around and I'd walk to see it from above, from, from her vantage point. It was amazing. Instantly there was a shift because on the top side of that cross stitch was a, a beautiful picture that she had woven into that fabric. And from below, from my vantage point, it looked like a mess. I was like, what's going on? But from, from the vantage point above, it made perfect sense. And, and I'm, I'm here to remind you today that here you are, you're, you're below, and you're looking up at what God's sowing into your life, and you're thinking, my Heavenly Father is making a mess. All these different threads going in all these different directions, all these different colors, and it looks like complete chaos. But I want to remind you there's going to be a moment where your heavenly father is going to call you and is going to allow you to see that exact same situation from a different vantage point. You're going to see it from above. You're going to see it from his perspective. And in that moment, it's all going to make sense. Every dark, every dark thread that the heavenly father sowed into your life in that moment is going to make sense. Every chaotic kind of sowing, every situation, every circumstance that made no sense here and now, in that moment, all of a sudden will come together in perfect clarity. In fact, 1 Corinthians says, right now, we see in part, from below, we see in part. But one day, when we're with Jesus, we're going to see this thing fully. We're going to see the complete picture. We're going to have a fuller understanding of what's taking place. And so I want to remind you, trust. Rest in His providence. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.